0: You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.
1: My husband and I received DNA tests from my mother and father as a gift over the holidays, and I've been hesitant to complete the test. I've heard the critiques, the inability to pinpoint specific regions due to a lack of DNA samples, and the inaccuracy of linking our DNA to countries and land masses as we call them today. Of course, part of me is curious, what would it find? What are the lineages of my DNA? What parts of this world helped to create my body? My belief is that fundamentally, this information wouldn't change anything about who I am. Perhaps I would feel differently if if a DNA test showed me um, something I wasn't expecting. I'm lucky to know my biological parents, but what if it showed me we weren't related? Although I don't need to entertain this idea too far, because the one time I dressed in drag proved I am related to my mother. (laughs) She hails from Scottish, English, and German heritage. The other bloodline has more questions. My father came to this country in 1954 at the age of 16 from Quetzaltenango, Guatemala. He never knew his biological father. He landed in Provo, Utah after receiving an education scholarship from the Mormon church. He spoke no English. And from what I can gather, uh, school didn't pan out. He found a job working in the fields living with other immigrants. The details surrounding his immigration to the United States are fuzzy. I've often wondered what implored him to leave. Was there a situation or event that led him to escape life in Guatemala? When I've asked, silence is my only answer. The truth is, my father has consciously kept his history to himself. For reasons unknown, he's reluctant to talk about his family or life in Guatemala body and identity are complicated. I have what the podcast Code Switch has termed racial imposter syndrome. Can I claim my Latino culture despite my complexion? I can't tell you the number of times people were surprised when I introduced myself. Lopez, you don't look like a Lopez. My body allows me to pass in white culture while my DNA is biracial. Can I claim my Latino culture even if I don't speak Spanish fluently? What if I've only been to Guatemala once in my life? My body holds these fears of inadequacy, feelings of confusion, wondering, would a DNA test authenticate the information I already have or provide answers my dad has refused to reveal? It appears my father took distinct steps to separate his body from its connection to Guatemala, while I am pulled to put these links back together for myself. In today's political climate, I'm proud to be the son of a Latino immigrant. I'm proud of my surname. Even though my native language is English, my skin is pale, and I don't know how to make my dad's salsa, my body is a vessel that holds a unique experience that is completely mine. Come, let us worship.
2: It's been a few years since a dear friend and colleague told me about an experience she had when she was a kid. She was a young child, she said, minding her own business, just hanging out and playing in her neighborhood, when out of nowhere, a dog came out and attacked her. And it bit her on the face, and it hurt her in some pretty severe ways. The bites were rough, the damage was bad. And she spent many long days and nights in the hospital, healing and recovering from this. And she says she knows, looking back, that this should have, by all accounts, been a traumatizing experience for her. But it wasn't. When she looks back on that experience, all she remembers, she says, are the people, all the people, the nurses and the doctors, her family members and friends, the folks from her church who showed up and looked at her with these adoring faces. What she remembers was the love that was beaming at her the whole time. She says it wasn't until weeks later when she finally got home and looked into a mirror that she realized how bad her face looked, how horribly disfigured she had been by this accident. She said all she had seen was love and beauty coming back at her. I think about this and the way it makes me feel, and I think maybe this is what universalism feels like in our bodies, that unconditional love beaming down on us, looking out at us, us giving and receiving that with one another. Maybe this is what really understanding that we are whole and holy and worthy feels like in our bodies. Maybe it's what we can give to one another. And I wonder what would it be like if this was the exchange that our world was based on, this way of looking at someone, at being looked at, Somebody after the first service, I was talking to them about this experience, and they said, well, it's kind of like looking at everybody as if you have a major crush on them. I was like, that's kind of a good way to think about it. (laughs) How could we do that with each other? And what would our world feel like and be like if that was how we operated? I think we know that this is a long way from the reality that we live within, especially here in this culture. If you have grown up or spent any time living in the United States, you have been told tremendous lies about your body and other people's bodies. There have been so many lies told for generations and for centuries. We have been th- taught through our laws, through literature, through economics, through movies and music and entertainment and employment and healthcare care and religious institutions that some bodies are worthwhile, and some bodies are not. Here are a few of the things that we have been taught. That black and brown bodies are worth less than white bodies. That differently able bodies are defective rather than resilient. That larger bodies are lazy. Smaller bodies are childlike. That the physical desires of gay and lesbian and bisexual bodies are unnatural or evil. That older bodies are just past their prime and have less to contribute that male bodies are more valuable when they're productive and emotion-free, that female bodies exist for the pleasure and comfort of others, that bodies that do not conform to the made-up gender binary don't even deserve basic safety. We have been taught in so many different ways that our bodies and other people's bodies exist out there to be judged. In fact, we should be judging ourselves and each other, some as more worthy and valuable than others. This is the habit and the practice of our culture. Sometimes we have family and friends and church communities like my friend did who look at us and tell us the truth, who counter the stories of the dominant society. They tell us that we are whole and holy and worthy, lovable exactly as we are, and so is every other person. And this is the taproot of universalism, But sometimes, our families and communities fall in line with the dominant narrative in our culture, and they reinforce the lies and leave us living in these myths and half-truths and falsehoods that corrupt our bodies and minds and spirits. Dr. King was clear in his response to the question, what is the role of religious institutions in the work of racial justice? It's about destroying the myths that some bodies are better than other bodies, that some bodies are superior and other bodies are inferior, and particularly in the work of racial justice, destroying the myths and the attitudes that have created the culture of white supremacy. This is our job as a religious institution, to counter these myths and falsehoods, to tell the truth, the truth, as the poet Mary Oliver once wrote, that every body is a lion of courage. All of us, each of our bodies, a lion of courage. When we fall into the trap of judging our bodies and ourselves and judging each other's bodies and each other's selves based on the things that we have been taught, the lies we have been told, we are falling into the trap of our culture. And we must push back with the taproot of universalism loving our bodies and each other bodies very clearly as an act of resistance. Now, I can tell you that I know all about this in my head, and I even know that it's true in my heart, and I absolutely trust that your body is whole and holy and worthy, and that when I hear the messages in my head and the lies come up that tell me that some other body isn't as good, I try my best to recognize it and push it away and trust in the truth, that we are each whole and holy and worthy. And I know, too, that sometimes when I look at myself, I am less than generous. Maybe this happens for you, too. Maybe. I've heard about it out there. There are days when I do not think the good thoughts about my physical body or my mental body, my spiritual body. And so I come back to the truth that I know, that any worthy ideal takes practice, and is aspirational. So living into the idea that my body and your body and every body is whole and holy and worthy, it's not something I'm going to get perfect. It's something I'm going to need to try again and again and again. So I remind myself that my body and your body each contain the DNA of our ancestors, whether we know about it or not. Each one of those lives, part of the price of entry for our lives in this world. I remember that even when I am not thinking about it, and certainly when I am not in control of it, my body is doing amazing things, exchanging air just to begin. Our bodies are healing, recovering, resilient, grace-filled bodies. Each one of us, even when we are sick, even when there is a disease or an injury, there is something in us moving toward life. So in this culture, In this culture that tells us all kinds of lies about our bodies and other people's bodies, loving who we are, loving each other, is absolutely an act of resistance. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do not just because we have this judgment of ourselves and others, but it's hard, I think, because actually living into it comes with a whole lot of risk, especially if our bodies fit within a marginalized community in the U.S., So I'll tell you a story that comes from the book, A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota. It's in this book that Tyon Coleman talks about her experience as a new graduate student in the creative writing program at the University of Minnesota. She was actively recruited to come and study here, and she chose the U over a similar program in Alabama because she couldn't imagine choosing to submerge herself in the overt racist culture of the South. Surely, she thought, Minnesota would be better than that. So it was her introductory seminar. She was sitting with her professor and the other new students in the writing program, each one of them introducing themselves and sharing a sample of their work. And it was in that public space, in those first few days of being together, when the instructor said, Ty, I read your manuscript, and there are numerous errors, and I think you need to take some grammar classes you're never gonna get published. Now, Tayan says that her classmates looked away. Many of them, she said, never looked back for the rest of the semester or the rest of the program. No one in the room seemed to know or care that Tayan had already graduated with a master's degree in English, that she'd been teaching college-level composition classes for years, They didn't care or know that the poetry that she wrote lived within a literary canon of similar works and authors. There in that moment, she found herself wondering if all that these folks cared about and all that they cared to know about her could be reduced to what they thought they saw. And these are her words. Black, first-generation university student on both sides of my family, fat, urban, working class, and female. In that moment, she writes, A constructed institutional stereotype had been tied around my black neck like a loose rope, with the threat of its threads tightening the more I resisted. If I stood my ground, she said, the noose would only continue to constrict. If I gave in and assimilated, there might be hope for me, my work, and my neck." What a powerful experience and image a constructed institutional stereotype, tied around my black neck like a loose rope, she said. And with these words, she outlined the very real dilemma that she and others were facing in that moment. Was she or was anyone else in that classroom going to assert the worth and dignity of her black body and black mind? Were they all going to stay quiet and assimilate to the power of the professor and the larger culture? maybe escaping further harm in that moment, but certainly feeling the heat of shame and internalizing the cost of swallowing lies about yourself or others. As the room fell silent, Tayan said a memory flooded over her. It was the memory of her strong, single, black mother. In high school, Tayan remembered that she often had to walk home late at night by herself after work and her mother taught her to always look people directly in the eye. If you think that they might try to steal from you, don't look away, Tayan, she would say with a cigarette in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other. Let them know that if they come after you, that you're going to fight them hard, and they will decide that you are not worth the trouble and leave you alone. The professor's words were still hanging in the air as that memory came and went for her. The sting of his final statement, well, you'll never get published then just hanging out in the air. And that's when Tayan spoke without thinking. Well, then, she said, these aren't places I want to be published anyway. The class gasped, and Tayan knew her mother would be proud. And later, she says, as she walked down Nicolet Avenue on her way back to her apartment, the pain in her body set in, wounds taking shape from the instructor's words and from the silence there in that room. Loving yourself publicly. Demanding that your body be treated with fairness and respect. That is a big risk to take sometimes. Sometimes it feels like no choice at all. When you literally and figuratively feel trapped. When any struggle could cause things to be worse. And there are times too when the answer comes through loud and clear and we find ourselves asserting our own dignity and worth or the dignity and worth of another without thinking, remembering that we are the whole and holy and worthy people that we truly are, each and every one of us. It was 1967, in what would be his last presidential address to the Southern Christian Leadership Council, that Dr. King spoke explicitly about the importance of self-esteem, of pride, and internal integration and psychological freedom for the black community. It was 10 years after the Montgomery bus boycott in that moment, 10 years, he said, after assault after assault on the sagging walls of segregation that had caused them to finally come down. In that moment, in 1967, it was, in 67, it was impossible, he said now, to count the number of public establishments that were open to black people. When once it was transportation, lunch counters, public assemblies, political assemblies, that were all closed. Now, he said, the experience of what it was like to be black in America, something that used to be largely invisible, was now visible to the white community. And then, in his words, he said, civil rights has become a dominating issue in every state, crowding the pages of the press and the daily conversation of white Americans. In this decade of change, he taught, the Negro stood up and confronted his oppressor. He faced the bullies and the guns and the dogs and the tear gas. He put himself squarely before the vicious mobs and moved with strength and dignity toward them and decisively defeated them. He came out of his struggle integrated only slightly in the external society, but powerfully integrated within. This was a victory that had to precede all other gains. How had so much progress been made in such a relatively short time, King was asking. The people who had so long been oppressed, who had so long been taught and treated that they were not human beings, had integrated the truth about their worth and dignity within. People in this country had rejected the centuries-old lies about white supremacy and black inferiority and been exposed to the truth. Then, speaking specifically to black people, King went on to teach this. We must massively assert our worth and dignity. As long as the mind is enslaved, the body can never be free. Psychological freedom, a firm sense of self-esteem, is the most powerful weapon against the long night of slavery a firm sense of self-esteem, an integrated knowledge of our true worth. These are the things that can free us psychologically, that can help us to wake up to the realities of our lives and our world and help us move toward justice. As long as the mind is enslaved, King taught, as long as we believe the lies about racism and white supremacy and every other made-up idea out there about what we and others are worth, As long as the mind is enslaved by these ideas, the body will never be free. Justice will never come to our land. So loving ourselves, loving our bodies and each other's bodies in all of their various forms of glorious expression, it is an act of resistance in this world. So how do we do it? How do we take up this challenge in our actual lives and unlearn the lies we've been taught for generations and live into the universal and unconditional love that we long for in this world? I think the truth is that there are lots of ways to get there and that it will be different for each and every one of us. There are a few things that most of us need to do. Actively learning our history and the history of our nation, hearing real stories about real people who are different from us, paying attention to our bodies and what they have to say and what they have to teach us, calling on our ancestors, as Tayan did when she responded to her professor, remembering their strength and wisdom and dignity and inviting them to move through our bodies and through our words and actions. Maybe we can surround ourselves with people who love themselves and who love us, Maybe we can create these little enclaves of courage and kindness where we can tell the truth about our own experiences and hear the truth about others. Maybe if we cannot see ourselves with love just yet, we can look into someone else's eyes and see it reflected back to us. There are all different ways to do this work, healing ourselves and each other with love. With love, we can surely lessen the pain that cannot be avoided, We can surely unlearn the lies and relearn the truth about who we really are. We can put universalism into practice for ourselves and one another and open our hearts to the unconditional love that is at the center of our faith, putting down those judgments we've learned to carry about our bodies and everybody else's bodies, too. It's possible for us to learn to love ourselves and each other as an act of resistance. I know it will look different for each of us. So how will it look for you? How will you do this? How will you practice again and again, setting aside the judgments and the lies that you've been taught about yourself and someone else? How will you begin again in love over and over again? Maybe for you, It means really feeling and letting go and being in your body sometimes. Making music, jamming to the music, singing along to the music, feeling yourself in community. Maybe it's meditation and following your breath and repeating a new mantra to yourself about your worth and other people's worth with each and every inhale. Maybe it's feeling love freely exchanged between yourself and another, And maybe sometimes that just takes the expression of a smile to a stranger on the street. Maybe it's being held or holding another and feeling their breath slow down and settle when they tuck their head into your shoulder. How will it happen for you? How will you put yourself in the beam of love and how will you create it for others? Love was the center of Dr. King's message a fierce love that was both motive and method for making justice in this world. Dr. King's sister, Christine, says this, My brother was no saint. And then I imagine what my brother would say about me. Also no saint, just for the record. (laughs) My brother was no saint, she said, ordained as such by birth, Instead, he was an average and ordinary man called by a God in whom he had deep and abiding faith to perform extraordinary deeds for freedom, peace, and justice. He was an ordinary man propelled and held by his faith to perform extraordinary deeds for freedom, peace, and justice. May we be and do the same. May it be so
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.